indeed, it's uh, an honor and a pleasure for me to be able to bring the word uh, to you again uh, this morning. Uh, as I said, Joe's out of town, so I get to share in a pulpit, and I always like, love to, to do that. You know, when I have sermons, I normally use uh, my children or my wife as examples in the sermon, but this week my wife's in the booth, so if I start saying anything, she's just, just going to, they're going to turn me down, you know, off, so. so there will be nothing in there about her and my sermon, so. <laughs> the title of my sermon this morning is, Are You First or Last? Are You First or Last? And my text comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I had to find a parable. I love uh, the parables. I just like teaching them and studying them. And Well, in the Gospel of Luke that we're going through with uh, Joe, most of the parables are in there. I mean, there are quite a few. But this parable, which is really one of my favorites, is not in the book. So I thought I would uh, preach on that today. So Matthew chapter 19, verses 30. From verse 30 through 2016. Hear God's word. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first. And the first, last. May God add his blessing to his holy word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus that were captured by the gospel, by Matthew, and they're spoken to us even today. I pray that, Lord, through your Holy Spirit now, you would illumine our hearts and our minds to receive your word and let it re affect real change in our hearts and our lives how we live towards you and how we live towards our brothers and neighbors. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So you saw the first verse, right? But the many who are first will be last and the last first. And then sandwiched at the end, we saw, so the last will be first 
and the first last. Now, if you just go by the chapter breaking, some would say, well, that goes in the previous chapter. Well, it all goes together. And I think the writer, Matthew, meant something by sandwiching this particular parable in between the, those two verses. But a little bit about context so we understand what's going on here. So prior to this, what just had happened, there was the rich young ruler. Many of you know the story of the rich young ruler. And Joe will get into that later in Luke, so I don't want to steal his thunder. But he came up to Jesus, and he had a big question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, well, you keep the commandments. Well, and he felt a little smug, and he said, well, which ones? And Jesus goes and he uh, recites them back to him. And the guy gets a little smile on his face, and he says, I've kept all of these. What do I lack? Sounds like the guy, if you were in Sunday school class today, Bob was talking about uh, perfection and sanctification, and he met a guy that really thought he was perfect, you know? I don't know about you, I've never met a guy who was perfect, but this guy, this young ruler, who was of considerable wealth, thought that he was keeping all of God's commandments. So Jesus says to him, well, you lack one thing. Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. And it says that he grieved and went away because he had many riches. So Jesus offered him eternal life, the great exchange, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, and he doesn't take it. Instead, he goes away grieving because he violated, if you think about it, what's commandment? The first, and all of them under it, he violated. But the first is what? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And what was his God? Riches. Because he could not give up his riches to follow uh, Jesus. And then Jesus made some startling statements. Two of them had said, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he said one that, you know, many uh, theologians have grappled with for many, many years. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now I'm going to let Joe handle that verse when he gets to it in Luke. We're not going to delve into that. My point is this, the disciples then were greatly astonished, greatly astonished, and they asked the question, well, then who, who can be saved? Because in their minds, they have this idea in order to be saved, to get eternal life, you are to be a moral person. And, oh, by the way, if you're wealthy, that means what? That means God has blessed you, so truly this guy should have had entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And so they asked, who then could be saved? But Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now, unlike the rich young ruler, Peter and his disciples have accepted the challenge to give up everything to follow Jesus. And Peter pipes up. He says, he's probably thinking, well, Jesus, what about us? We left everything. We followed you. I mean, me and my brother, we left our fishing, you know, ex expedition. 
And over there, John and James, they left there. And they left everything. What, what, what's in it for us? And Jesus answers them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children's land for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, that sounds pretty good for the disciples, right? In fact, it's only a chapter later where James and John are wanting to say, well, I want to be in the right-hand throne, right? So these guys aren't getting it about their life of service, who, who Jesus is and what they are all about. But interestingly, he ends his answer. Jesus does, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Then he launches right into this parable that we are going to talk about today. So let's unpack that parable a little bit. Now, parables are stories used to clarify the meaning of what's being said, right? And we see Jesus using parables a lot. The most fundamental component of a, of a parable is that there must be a comparison, right? So Jesus continually say, the kingdom of God is like, right, a mustard seed. Uh, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, you'll see kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven used synonymously uh, in, the, in, the, in the gospels. One of the uh, hermeneutical guidelines for interpreting parables, I had to say hermeneutical because it's, you know, it's, it's a... It's a big word I learned in seminary, and i got to show you my education, okay? So <laughs> hermeneutics just means how to interpret, okay? But one of the and hermeneutical guidelines for interpreting parables is to note the striking or unexpected details, uh, shocking events that come up, things that just throw you off your horse, like last week, Right? The, the shocking thing was would a, a Samaritan, and Jesus used a, a Samaritan being the good guy in the story, right? So keep an eye on that as we try to unlock this. But secondly, <clears throat> excuse me, secondly, we must recognize that it is the Holy Spirit that has to open up our eyes. The disciples were with uh, Jesus, and it says in Mark's gospel, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So God, through his Holy Spirit, has to help us to see and unlock what these parables are like. So the kingdom of heaven is like. Let's go through this parable together. First, we have the master of the house. The master of the house is the landowner, right? He goes out early in the morning, 6 a.m., to hire laborers to work in his vineyard. It's most likely harvest time, and the grapes need to be harvested as quickly as possible so not to spoil. So he agrees with the first laborers, right, for a fair wage. A denarius was a standard day wage for a laborer. Roman soldiers made a denarius a day. So it was a reasonable, fair wage for working a full day. So he agrees with them at the first hour. At the third hour, 9 a.m., he goes back out, and he sees people standing idle, and he hires him. But he doesn't say what he's going to hire him for, right? It says, whatever is right, I will give you. I think they notice and trust him as a fair man, 
And that's why they decide to work for him, not knowing what they're going to get. He does the same thing at noon, 6 o'clock, then at 3 o'clock, the ninth hour, hiring then. Finally, he goes back the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m., and hires workers who had been standing idle all day to work that final day. Now, here's where you start seeing that seems kind of ridiculous. You know, the 11th hour, okay? They didn't have Chevy pickups back then. So by the time you, he got these workers and to bring them back to the vineyard, it would be end of day, right? Well, there's so far so good, just another story. Now the story takes a shocking turn, right? It's payday. Time to get paid. End of the day, 6 o'clock. The owner sends his foreman to pay the workers. Starts with the last group. By the way, God's law required the prompt pay of day laborers. You look in Deuteronomy chapter 24, it says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So he forms up the pay line. Starts with those who started last, the guys that came in at 5 o'clock, all the way back to those that started first thing. Now, those first few guys, think about it. You need a picture in a pair. They haven't even broken a sweat yet. I mean, by the time they got to the, the vineyard, they came back, right? So, so they're there, and all of a sudden, they get handed a denarius, Right? And you're, they're thinking, what? This is pretty good. This guy pays really, really well. And they're smiling. They're happy. How about you? Have you ever worked a job when you were a kid or even now when you, you were getting an expected wage and then your boss handed you an extra $5 or $10? Didn't that make you feel good, excited? I remember I used to work for uh, my Sunday school teacher when I was in, uh, in junior high. And uh, he paid me a whopping $5 to work about three hours of labor in his yard to every Saturday to cut the grass and all that. But I remember one Saturday after he says, okay, here's your pay, and I'm going to take you to a Pittsburgh Pirates baseball game. And I was like, box seats, which only cost $4 back then, you know. (laughs) But I was ecstatic, right? I was ecstatic because I wasn't expecting it. These guys aren't expecting it. That's the whole point. I want you to keep that in your mind. All right? So now we get all the way down. It says it gives them, hands them off. And it really doesn't say anything about those workers in between. Now we get to the other guys, the guys that started at 6 a.m. Picture them. They're sweaty. They stink. They've been out there 12 hours, sunburnt. And not only that, what makes it worse, they have to wait in line the longest. They're in the back. Now, I know most of you like waiting in lines, right? Tomorrow I have to go pick up my prescription at Eglin and wait in, and for you to familiar in the pharmacy line. Ask my wife, I call her on the phone, and I'm like, honey, I need relief here. I'm still in line. There's 14 cars in front of me, and it's, you know, 20. I don't like waiting in lines. Most people don't wait in lines. But these guys were waiting in line, sweaty, hot, 
And they're thinking, <clears throat> they're thinking what? If that guy got a denarius, he got to get a denarius. We've been here all day. He's going to give us a nice bonus. And they get up there and what? Slap a denarius on him and that's it. Now, what would you think if you were that person? What are you thinking now? You know, when you hear, yeah, you hear the famous line that we hear all today in society is what? That's not fair. That's not fair. We worked all this time, and we got the same as those guys who didn't work but one hour. That's not fair. Well, that's, that's the way we grow up and learn, right? I remember when the kids, my kids were, I can use my kids in the, uh, uh, my story here. My kids were little. We, I think we just moved here, but we got a lot of oak trees in our yard. And, you know, them darn oak leaves, they just keep falling and falling and falling. So one day I said, all right, kids, we're going to break the leaves and put them in bags. And if you help me, we're going to go to Dairy Queen, you know. And so they're all in agreement. Yeah, let's do that. We'll help you, Dad. We'll break the leaves. And, and uh, so we get out there. It's only a couple hours. But I think Reagan, because she's here today, I can make fun of her. Reagan was the smallest. And I think she came out late. And she really didn't rake that many leaves and put them in the bags. And so anyways, we're all done. I said, all right, jump in the car. We're going down to uh, Dairy Queen. And what do you think Jackson and Madison said? That's not fair. She didn't do hardly any work doing leaves. Of course, the nurse Jackson says, she should get a small blizzard where we get the big one. <laughs> because it's just, it's the way we think, right? It's the way we think. They don't deserve the same keg because they didn't do the same amount of work. So, the parable is there to kind of shock you. And so we need to start thinking about that. So what is the point? What is the point of the parable? Well, the point of the parable is, is that the kingdom of God, remember it's like, operates on grace, not on merit. The kingdom of God operates on grace, not merit. The denarius represents our salvation, our eter eternal life, all right? And so think about it. He's going back to the context of the uh, rich young ruler. The rich young ruler thought he deserved a ticket into the kingdom of God, right? Because he's doing the right things. How good he is, how wealthy. The disciples probably thought the same thing about him. But it's not because of who we are, what we've done, that we deserve anything. My friend, the whole point of grace is that it is unmerited and we don't deserve it. Peter and his disciples, as well as us, we need to recognize that our election into the kingdom of God is solely based on his sovereign good pleasure. And any gifts that we receive even after that, because of our works, are based on his marvelous, marvelous grace. Remember, he, the landowner, came out to get them, to bring them into his vineyard. Jesus chose the disciples the disciples didn't choose Jesus. He calls us not the other way around. In fact, Paul in Romans says, no one seeks after God, no, not one. 
He had to come and seek after us. Okay? And once we are hired into the kingdom, once we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, whether we're first or last, we need to recognize that our role in the kingdom of God is not based on who we are, our skills, or our gifts, but solely on his grace alone. Paul tells us in Romans that we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I have a sermon for that sometime. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We all do it. We think, we think we're smarter than, we ought, than the average bear, right? We think we are more gifted than the average. We're not to think more highly. We're to be humble. Jesus' point of the parable is that neither the rich young ruler or the disciples are in the kingdom because of who they are or what they have done. See, the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom from the kingdom of this world. The point of the parable is not how to run a successful business, right? If you ran your business like that guy for more than a week, what would happen? Everybody would come when to work? (laughs) The 11th hour, right? That's not the point of the thing. This parable is not about fairness, but the problem is we look at life through our lens of fairness, And what I would encourage you and I to do today is that we need to look at life through eyes of grace, right? Every day I have to put on glasses. Like right now, I see a blur. Like I I couldn't tell that was Chuck Parrock. I could probably squint and say it's Bill. But I can't see. I need these glasses. I got to put them on to see. And every day we put on glasses the way we look at life. And in our culture today, I hate to say it, in society, everybody puts on the lenses of fairness, And they're saying, well, that's not fair to me. That's not fair to my family. Instead, we should be looking at what has God done for me and for you? All right. A few more observations from this parable. As the great John Calvin so beautifully states, the sum of true wisdom, this is for Harold, I put it in here, you know, this. the sum of true wisdom is what? The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. So let's see, we learn a little bit about God, and we learn about ourselves. First, about God. Clearly, God is the landowner or the master of the house in this parable. Notice that the owner is a man of integrity, faithful to his word. He gave the first workers exactly what they agreed to. He honored his word. He promised them a denarius, gave them a denarius, and it was a good day's wage. We can count on God being faithful in all his promises. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Listen to some of these promises from God's word. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Or how about this from Deuteronomy? Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And this is one of my uh, favorite promises in the Bible. 
For I am confident of this one thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And the Bible is replete with promises, and God is faithful to his holy word. And this landowner was faithful to his word. Aren't you glad God is a faithful God who keeps his word? And we can count on that. Second point about the owner. The owner has total control or sovereignty over his vineyard. Notice that the owner says what? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? He owned and controlled the vineyard. He owned all the tools in the vineyard. Everything required to produce the fruit came from the owner. He had the authority to hire the workers. He had the right to pay them what he saw was fit. Now, if they didn't want to work for that, that was their choice. But he had the authority. And he said, I wish to give this last man the same as you. He could do that because he's the owner. God is ruler of the universe, has the right to do whatever he wants. We forget that sometimes. I think as I get older in life as a Christian, the more and more I realize God is in control and God can do what he wants. We may not understand all the things that happen in our lives, but at the end of the day, he's God and we're not. And we need to be reminded of that. Psalm 115.3 says, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Daniel 4.35 says, All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? That was what that guy was doing, right? He was saying, what have you done? You, you can't give those guys the same amount you gave to us. How many times do we do that to God? Lord, you can't do that. Why, why, why are you blessing them? Now, I don't know, why aren't you blessing me? God chose Jacob over Esau, even though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Some people say, well, that's not fair to Esau. That's above my pay grade. That's what God did. God chose Israel from many other nations. Why did he choose Israel? You read in the old, it's not because they were bigger or better in any way. He just chose them. His sovereign purposes. We might not like God's choices or understand them, but in the end, he is God. He is sovereign overall. But not only is he sovereign, but I want more than a sovereign God. We see here, and really the most important characteristic is number three God is full of mercy grace and generosity he is a benevolent good God not only did he pay off those that was hired first but he gave those after more than they deserved and that's the point of the parable they got more than they deserved and just like you and I as believers Ephesians 1 says in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, what? According to the riches of his grace, which he, I love this word, lavished on us. He lavishes his grace on us. And then you go further in the next chapter, very familiar, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Basically, we were spiritually unemployed, needing to be hired into the vineyard. And he came and he hired us. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We all receive God's marvelous grace, our salvation. But you see, the problem with the, those first workers were, and that's where the focus on the workers are, is on the first ones, is they, it says they begrudged the landowner's generosity that he showed to the others. Because they didn't understand his grace and benevolence that he showed them. And we have to be careful about this too. So let's talk about the workers, what we can learn a little bit about ourselves. I see two things we can learn from our, about ourselves and we shouldn't do. Number one, they grumbled at the master because they thought they weren't treated fairly. And then number two, they begrudged the master's generosity. Let's look at the first point. They grumbled because they thought they weren't treated fairly. Why did they think they weren't treated fairly? Because they compared themselves to the other workers. Did the workers who started first thing in the morning think their wage was a fair one when they accepted the work? Yes, they agreed to it with the owner. Was the owner unfair? No, he gave them exactly what they agreed to. Listen now, Jerry Bridges says it. He says, to the first group of laborers, he was fair, as he readily agreed to pay a denarius, the ordinary wage of a day's labor. Then he was progressively more generous to each group of laborers hired throughout the day. The master could have paid them what they earned, but he chose to pay them according to their need, not according to their work. He paid according to grace not debt. We don't see this, but the day laborer was very dependent on the landowner. So in, in that context, these were poor men needing to make money to feed their families. And so he was giving those even at the end who needed a denarius for that day to be able to stop by Walmart and pick up a loaf of bread on the way home. They'd be paid. So why did the first workers change their views? Well, why did they think they would receive more? And what happened was when they started comparing, it led to discontentment and envy. When we start comparing our lives with others, we will always find something that the other person has that we don't have. That's why we need to focus on what God has blessed us with rather than what we don't have. Their eye was no longer on the owner and their agreed upon wage, but on the other person and what they did get or didn't get. They would have been fine with that one denarius if everyone else would have been paid in proportion to what they were supposed to get. They would have thought, hey, I did a hard day's work today, got a good hard day's wage, I go home, they'd have been happy, content. But that didn't happen, and they were upset, and they grumbled at the master's generosity to others. And here's the real kicker in the parable. It says, he says, you have made them equal to us. They resented the owner, blessing the others and making them equal because in their mind, the others didn't deserve it. They made the error of thinking that the master had no inherent right to determine how he would allot his resources. It's when we start comparing what God has done for others and not us that we begin to judge God's fairness, and that's when we get in trouble. This could be is it something easily as the attitude that looks down on some and says, they don't deserve to be saved. 
Look what they've done. Prostitutes, tax collectors. That's the, what the Jesus dealt with, right? That, did the thief on the cross deserve to be saved? Now, if you want to talk about the last being first, he was the, the, the first. Thing, he, he went into heaven before who? All of the apostles. All of the apostles. Did he deserve it? No, it was God lavishing his grace on him. This grumbling, grumbling attitude could look at those who have hurt us and don't think it's fair that God saves them or blesses them, you know. It could be looking on others within the church saying, well, hey, I'm doing all the work around here. How come no one else who these people call themselves Christians, they're not doing nothing. I've been working hard all these years. This is all I get, Lord. Look at those people over there. They come to church, but they don't really participate, and uh, they have a better job than I do, a nicer house. We have to guard ourselves from, from these things because what, what we're doing is we're not looking on what God has blessed us with. We're looking on what others have, and we're doing the comparison. And then in our minds, we put on the glasses of, that's not fair. That's not fair. I don't know why things happen. There are parents that have raised their kids to the T to follow the Lord. And when they get off on their own, they go the other way. And then there are parents that probably hadn't done nothing but said a couple now lay me down to sleep prayers at night. And their kids are serving the Lord, going in the mission field. Why does that happen? I don't know. But we can't get in the mindset that, that, that that's not fair. That's not fair. Why are you blessing them, Lord, and not me? That's in essence what they were saying. Jonah didn't think it was fair for God to what? Be compassionate to Nineveh and save a whole people. He's like, I'm not going over to preach to those people. They don't deserve it. But we know what happened there. This is the same attitude we see in the prodigal son's brother, another parable. Here, listen. The prodigal son's brother, when, you know, when the father went out and threw the big party for him what's he say he goes look for so many years I've been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends what in essence was he saying that's not fair dad you haven't thrown a party for me but you know Jesus does these parables that kind of get us to side with the wrong guy you know some of what you, and let's be fair, we're siding with those first hour workers. That's not fair. That's not right. We're siding with the good, faithful brother. But Jesus is trying to point out there's something in their hearts and attitudes that isn't right. Have you ever grumbled to God because you thought you weren't getting a fair deal? This is not where I expected to be in my career at this point of life. I've been faithful to the Lord, and this is all I have. We don't want to be like the children of Israel who, when God took them into the wilderness, what they do out there? Grumbled. Grumbled. Oh, if I'd be back and have the onions and leeks back in Egypt. The good old days, right? All right, second point. Begrudging God's generosity in others, and then we'll wrap it up. So these workers were so focused on their apparent shortfall that they failed to see the landowner's benevolence towards the others. In effect... They were saying he was not fair. You know, we should be rejoicing when God saves the most despicable sinner. 
We should rejoice in other blessings, even when we may not experience the same blessings. The Bible says God reigns on the, the just and the unjust alike. Instead of saying, why are they so blessed and I'm not, we need to thank the Lord for all his many blessings. Was the landowner just? He was just to the first workers. To the remaining, he was graceful and benevolent. And to be honest, folks, I don't know about you, but I don't want the justice of God. <laughs> you want what's really fair for you and really fair for me? What does the Bible say we deserve? The wrath of God. Thank God Jesus Christ took upon himself the wrath of God. It wasn't fair for him. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And he took upon our sins. So let's go back to the statement. But many who are first will be last and last first. At the end of the day, it's not about what you've given up. Like the disciples, houses, brothers, sisters said. It's about God's grace. His salvation in Jesus. Don't get caught up in how long you've been serving, how much you've done, and what kind of reward you will get. Get caught up in his marvelous grace and love and mercy every day. Put on those eyeglasses of grace. The truth is, all of us, if you think about it, are 11th hour laborers. Even if you've been serving since a child, we're in, in, in this picture, we are all 11th hour laborers. We were unemployed without hope until the master of the house sent his son to pay the ultimate price of our salvation. So let us faithfully go and work in his vineyard, living our lives on the basis of God's grace learning to be thankful to God for he gives to us and not to begrudge his blessings he gives to others. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this uh, wonderful parable and we thank you uh, the lessons we can learn and Lord, we uh, pray you would forgive us when we uh, look through life as, as, uh, through the glasses of fairness more than we do Lord, of your grace, help us to see each and every day that you shower us with your grace and your blessing. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here today that, that uh, does not understand the gospel and that you would open their eyes to that truth of the gospel today, that you want to hire them into the vineyard and help them to see your truth. And now, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would seal in us the, the words that we've he heard today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.